This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nick Ashburn. And I'm Cheryl Kuhlman. And we are here on Thursday mornings. It's a beautiful day here in Philadelphia. And we have been talking about, gosh, sustainable food. We've been talking about community development finance institutions. So... Once again, our think our, about where your money is sleeping at night, right? Where is your money sleeping at night? Right. I'm, I don't. I don't think I have a, be, a good answer, and I am ashamed about it because I do want to live my values. I want to be investing for my values. It's still tough. I think <laughs> you and I both yeah, know that. Agreed. But it, it's not for a lack of trying. But we gotta. You gotta really figure out what's what's best for you and and what products, whether that's financial yeah. or otherwise, are in the market. Every dollar you spend is a vote for the world you want to create. Yes, absolutely. Um, so we're going to wonk out a little bit uh, with some of Cheryl's and my favorite topic, and that's around data. Although, I, Cheryl, I'm, I'm worried that maybe our next guest, Jake Porway, who's the founder of DataKind, as a PhD with, in, in data science, uh, he might be way above <laughs> me. So, uh, so looking forward to learning uh, from Jake. Welcome to the show, Jake. Hey, thanks so much, Nick and Cheryl. Glad to be here. Do Do we have to worry? Are we going to break a bunch of stuff down? Are we going to talk <laughs> no, in jargon? Not Not at all. Don't worry. I assure you, the the degree is all for show. Uh, <laughs> I got it online. It's now. But uh, no, I think you know. It's funny you mentioned that because I think a lot of people hear, "Oh God, data. This is going to be about math and high school, and I'm going to feel dumb." And uh, so we actually, uh, you know, I, I think it's. That's a, a, one of the things standing in the way of people getting around this topic. So we're going we're gonna to break it down in, in simple English language because that's what everyone's going to need to be able to Excellent. Do this Excellent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think people have visions of just spreadsheets of zeros and right. ones or just yeah. random numbers. And then they're like, I, I don't know. And maybe some graphics every now and then. Yeah. You know, charts. So, <laughs> right. so, Jake, let's just start simply and, and help us understand what data kind is. Oh, absolutely. Well, you actually gave the best setup there with that vision of the, the spreadsheets and the nightmare pictures of binary, like we're looking at the matrix. Uh, but really, you know, data kind came out of this realization that it doesn't take much for people to see what data is doing in the world than to just think about how often you interact with it every day. Uh, I sit down to watch Netflix, and Netflix says, hey, you'd like this movie, because it's looking at all this data about what I like and what other people You're like. You're a 98% match. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yes, right. Your dating life is, is based on data. You, you know, Google Maps is telling me, hey, there's a faster route you know, to go get to the store, because it's actually looked at all the traffic data. And so really, you know, data is driving a lot of the things you know, that you wouldn't think of as data behind a lot of our decisions. And that's really exciting, because we're living in this world now where you know, digital information about humans could teach us so much about ourselves and our communities and our world. But we are mostly seeing this uh, in the for-profit community. So we're all, you know, for lack of a better way of saying it, we're, we're kind of solving first-world problems with a lot of these apps, you know, whether you can find a bar to go drink at or whether you can find the right movie. And on the flip side, in the social sector, there's huge opportunities for these same kinds of innovations, but they're not happening. So, for example, UPS can crunch all this data to determine that their fleets should actually not take left turns right, as often right. so they can get packages on time. That's a very popular article that's out right now. Um, but at the same time, vaccines uh, that could be life-saving vaccines are just sitting undelivered or unrouted effectively and are spoiling uh, because they don't have that same technology available. Well, so there's a lot of reasons for why that's not happening. But the thing that we see that's really interesting is uh, a lot of folks may think, well, nonprofits, the social sector, they're just not very technologically savvy. But in fact, a lot of social organizations are now using 
technology. They're surrounded by digital data just from the, you know, the satellite imagery that exists out there or open data that governments are producing. So we have no lack of, uh, of problems to apply this to. We have no lack of data or computing going on out in the social sector. Really, the big thing that's missing is the human capital. Because right. to turn that data into insights to do something smart, you really need, you know, like you said, a PhD in statistics or computing. And people who do that are usually well compensated and pretty rare. And so they go to Google and Facebook and Silicon Valley. Yeah, they're going to be snatched up. Exactly, which makes total sense. So really, this is a big lead in to say, you know, data kind. We said, look, we've got all these people who are really great at doing data science. A lot of them want to give back but don't know how. And then you've got all these groups like Amnesty International and the UN who have all this data they could use to make the world a better place, but they, they're not even sure how to get started. So couldn't we just bring these people together? And that's really how DataKind started. We're a, a nonprofit that uses data science and machine learning and AI in the service of humanity. And really our model is to get over this market gap of the human capital and get pro bono volunteer data scientists to team up with social organizations to co-create, build new innovations that could help bring this to uh, the social sector. And I love, and sure, yeah, I love hearing that because, I mean, it's one of these cases where the pro bono, the volunteer aspect is really a, a use of some very good skills. I mean, rather than going out and, like, painting schools or something along right, those lines. Right. You know, this is, you know it's, I'm glad you brought that up because it's really a win-win. You know, you get volunteers who say, this is so much better, like, than going and picking up trash. I can actually use my very yeah. uh, expert skill. Um, and similarly, you know, we, we really emphasize this is not – a lot of people hear volunteer and think low skill. Are these just going to be, you know, students in, in data analysis programs? But, you know, we get people who are the chief data scientists at Netflix and, you know, professors in universities who say, man, if I could just, you know, work with these groups, I could do a lot of good. So it's really, it's a, it's really a win-win in terms of kind of skills-based volunteering. So – what I guess I want to better understand, I guess, the model. So it's one thing to have, you know, a cadre of vol- data scientists, volunteers. You have people who might need analysis on their data to better help decision making. Are you the matchmaker? Is that really what data kind's role is? That's a great question. And someone put it to us best. That they see us as, uh, really see ourselves as the matchmaker and relationship counselor. So to answer the question, you've got to think back to what are the problems? So, you know, if data scientists could just call up nonprofits who needed each other's help, uh, we wouldn't need to exist. You could just have a website. Everyone could find each other and great things would happen. The challenge that you have is, you know, data scientists aren't always plugged into what the challenges of, say, Amnesty International's human, human rights agenda is, right? So that they can't just sit down and start working. They don't know what the project is. And Amnesty International doesn't necessarily know the language of data science or what's even possible. Because at this stage, you know, algorithms yeah. and, AI and all those things that make people feel dumb we talked about are pretty foreign. So what we do at Data Guys, we really work with both sides, uh, people who want to get involved with us. And we'll actually help scope out projects. We'll help people imagine the art of the possible and really figure out where teams of data scientists could best be deployed. Then we kind of round them up train everyone together, and then manage the relationship. We see it through to the end. We see it as our responsibility not just to make sure people know about each other, but we actually build this thing we've committed to for the world. So that's really our role is scoping the project, building you know, all of the kind of uh, like getting out all the muck that's keeping these people from working together in the first place. And so give us an example of, of one of those uh, relationships and, and um, situations where, where the product, where there's a nice sort of definable product that came out as a result. Sure. So uh, we did some work with the Red Cross not that long ago. And the Red Cross came and said, hey, we've got this challenge. We know there are a ton of preventable fires in the U.S. Uh, fires will go off and people don't have smoke alarms or uh, smoke detectors to protect them in certain houses. And so the a fire rages and unfortunately people damage, property gets damaged and people often die. And that's unacceptable. 
So we're going to solve this problem by going out and giving smoke alarms away for free. We're going to install them in people's homes so that we don't have people dying from preventable fires. It's a great cause, great mission for the Red Cross. Now the problem is, they go, but how do you do that? Like, how would you actually go out and start and do that? You just go knock on doors and say, here's a smoke alarm. It, the Red Cross itself is, has limited resources. They've got to put these smoke alarms in the best leveraged places. So they sat down and talked to some data scientists, and our data science volunteers, and they said, well, you know, uh, we could actually probably build a statistical model that could predict where these fire alarms are, or smoke alarms are most effective. And what they did was they pulled in a bunch of the Red Cross's historical data about where fires had occurred. They pulled in a bunch of uh, government data that's now openly available that tells you things about the uh, demographics of certain areas and, and building violations. And from all of this data, they put together a model that basically said, where are fires likely to happen? in the U.S., given this data, and within those areas, where are they likely to actually happen around a property that could cause damage? And then within that set, where are people likely to be harmed? Because those are the places you really need the smoke alarm. And so it comes out, the visual that goes with this when I give this talk is like a, a map with a bunch of hot spots on it. But really the end result is a list of places the Red Cross can go and target their efforts. And uh, even though the, the tool has only been in use for a couple of months, they've already come back and said, hey, we've already saved a couple of hundred lives uh, using this approach. And actually it was really kind of heartwarming to see that, you know, the volunteer team was presented with little uh, plaques from the Red Cross saying, hey, this is, you know, this, this is thanks worked. to the efforts of using data science together. Well, I think that's just, yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, example because I was coming at it from the assumption that you would go to the nonprofit and say, open up your data. Let me know what data you have and we'll work with this. But this is a, a kind of interesting approach in that you're going to external data sets um, so it's not it's not just what the nonprofit has. It's what data exists in the world and how do we bring that together? Well, I think that's what's so exciting is that there's so much digital information now that's available, whether it's social media data, satellite imagery data, that um, though a lot of nonprofits have digital data themselves, it's not just their own data that's needed anymore. Uh, moreover, I think a lot of organizations, when they hear the word data, they think, things that I've intentionally collected. Yes. So we found when we go to nonprofits and say, hey, what data do you have? They'll often say, well, we don't have a lot, or we did a survey, and here is our survey, because that's what we went out and collected. But when you actually dig a little deeper, you start to talk to them, and they say, oh, yeah, well, we've got our website, and we, you know, people sign up on the website. And you know, data scientists say, oh, well, actually, there's a ton of digital information about who went where on your site, how long they were there. Um, we actually know that your constituents also sign up on LinkedIn, and so there's some digital information there, potentially. So it's really exciting um, how many opportunities there are to get digital information uh, in the world. And that's really why when we talk to nonprofits, we talk to them. We actually always say we don't start with the data. We start with the question. What are your big challenges? What's keeping you from fulfilling your social mission? And then we'll work with you to figure out if, if and where the data is to do that. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. And we're talking with Jake Porway, who is the founder of Datakind. And Jake, I'm struck by the the Red Cross example and the fire and the data and the solutions that you created because I'm immediately struck by, you know, that same sort of exercise would be helpful in also, I mean, I'm sure insurance companies want to know that type of information and have that analysis, not just, you know, the Red Cross to put in fire alarms, because I'm, I'm reminded of a, a project that uh, a colleague at the Rockefeller Foundation was telling me, and they're trying to put potentially like a social impact bond together. So this sort of pay for success mm-hmm. financing for fire prevention, there's actually a tool, you know, where you can identify where fires might break out, and can you prevent them, but you need to up 
you know, upfront the financing to do that instead of, you know, responding to a fire. And that's a lot cheaper. The prevention's a lot cheaper than the response. So really thinking about um, that's what what made me think. I mean, there seems to be so many applications, no pun intended, applications to, you know, to the type of work that you're doing. I think you're totally right. The thing that's really kind of exciting about what you just said is that the the preventive aspect of what's possible now, because now, again, when people think data, I think they often think of looking into the past. Let me get information about what happened in the past, and I can sort of reflect on, you know, how many units I sold yesterday or what I did, you know, in the past. But with this new sort of upswell of data and computing, we can actually talk about what's likely to happen tomorrow. And so those are usually the kinds of information that allow us to actually act more effectively uh, so I think that's really great. And I think, you know, it's, there are other applications, yeah, of, of these um, tools coming back to the market. But I actually almost see it the other way around. I think we've seen so many um, obvious applications in the sort of the market space uh, that just sort of need a, an adaptation over to the social sector space. Like we have one project we're working on now where there's a, um, a startup that will actually monitor the health of different organized companies by looking at satellite imagery of their parking lots and tracking the cars that come in over time throughout the day to say, hey, how much, you know, what's the consumer consumerism level, say a Walmart, just by monitoring their parking lot from satellite imagery. And so that already exists. Now, there's also a problem on the social sector side that illegal mining or kind of corrupt mining practices really harm uh, local areas, local regions, the the people involved. There's corruption and sort of money that goes out of them. Uh, and people have no idea how to monitor that. And yet you could sort of take the same approach and monitor, you know, traffic in and out of illegal mining sites or identifying mining sites from satellite imagery. So that's so um, funny that you bring that example up of the mining, because I was in a conversation two days ago with someone who totally private sector was working for a big mining company and was in there to, you know, restructure something and potentially even sell pieces of the business off. And she said, I was down in South America in a big mining facility that was actually shut down. But when I got there in person, there were trucks moving in and out of it. And it was from a subcontractor that, Mm. like, was continuing to mine. But the big, you know, parent organization didn't know the activity was going on. Because they thought it was shut down. Because they thought it was shut down. Now, I'm not saying, like, oh, boo-hoo, the corporation. But I am (laughs) saying, like, satellite imagery and data like that would have been helpful in that regard. I think that's exactly right, and it just—it's, um, yeah, it just goes to show how much information we can we can get these days. It's just—it's really hard to do unless you're, you know, a computer vision PhD. It's not just sitting out there ready to be loaded up by anyone who has a computer. You you kind of have to have that that uh, knowledge and that expertise to turn that into something meaningful. So that's a great example. So Jake, um, tell our listeners a little bit more about your history and your background, like how you arrived at. This is a pain point. This is something I want to create a, an organization around. Well, you know, it, it's going to sound trite, uh, but, you know, you hear those stories of people saying, well, I just built the product I, I wanted for myself, which I think is often kind of flip. But, uh, you know, it, it happened to be true in this case where I had come out of uh, my schooling and doing computer science and statistics. And uh, it was sort of just apparent. I think that I had sort of come out of school a couple of years after the iPhone came out and, uh, it was sort of clear that, oh, my God, all of a sudden, all the problems that we were facing as statisticians uh, were going to be totally changed because one of the big problems is you don't have enough data to do stuff. You have to go out and commission data and get data. Now, all of a sudden, everyone's walking around with data collection uh, tools on their bodies. You know, they've got, you know, as yeah. big brotherish as that sounds and all the, you know, weird uh, ethical challenges that come from that, what it really signals was this 
explosive age of, of digital information. And, you know, honestly, I sort of um, suffered from the challenge that I led into the conversation with where I said, you know, this is also great, but here I am writing these apps to, you know, get people to click ads. That's really disappointing. This is so, there's so much power to this. I mean, we're actually, I, I get a little bit uh, uh, passionate about this and I try not to speak too hyperbolically, but by digitizing much of human activity, we're opening up a whole new age of science. And so what, you know, what could we learn, this whole new age of reason, which we could really uh, use this digital information, and it's, it's frustrating that it's so inaccessible to so many. And uh, I saw sort of fellow data scientists um, sitting around just saying, man, if we had, you know, Kiva's data or the Red Cross's data, I'm sure we could do some really good stuff, but how will we get it? Who would we work with there? How do we make that happen? And so um, I actually, uh, that was really the, the passion that drove me was that I wanted to give back. And it actually, the organization started kind of um, accidentally because I, I wrote to a bunch of people in the New York area where I was working. I was a, an R&D scientist at the uh, New York Times. I said, hey, does anyone else want to like try a social good hackathon? You know, we're always sitting around hacking on data and building, you know, Twitter for pets. Uh, what if we, what if we try to do it with like the Red Cross? Like, is this a stupid idea? Like, does anyone even want to do this? And if you want to do it, here's a little Google form. Just put your name in, you know, this way you can answer anonymously. Because I was so convinced that I was the only one who wanted to do it. Um, and not only did the 10 or so people that I sent this to respond, but they actually started sharing it. And so I, I woke up the next morning and the, the post had gone viral. And uh, people around the world are writing and saying, oh, my God, I want to do DataKind China. I'm going to do DataKind France. How do I sign up? The, the White House was calling and saying, what's this new initiative? How do we support? And, I, you know, I just submitted it at a desk. I was like, oh, oh, my God. What did uh, I do? What have I done? Yeah. <laughs> so, but it's really it's a testament to all the people out there who want to give back the kind of moment this is in history. And uh, so ever since then, we've just been trying to keep up with that enthusiasm and the passion of the whole world. Um, it's a real honor to get to serve. It's kind of the, the platform for folks, but really it's, it's the energy of, of everyone else who's actually out there and doing it. So that was kind of my background and how we got here. And Jake, how, how many of these projects do you do a year? Oh, great question. So um, we're five years old. We've done about 200 projects Ooh. so far. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, and, and really, again, a lot of that is because we have about 14,000 volunteers around the world. And really, our model is to try to get these collaborations to occur as widespread as possible while still preserving quality. So we have a, a pretty um, light-touch approach. We've got these volunteer networks, uh, that we, uh, chapter systems that we use. So we actually have volunteer chapters in six cities around the world, uh, in the U.K., in Dublin, Bangalore, Singapore, D.C., San Francisco, and we're in New York. Um, so there's a lot of projects coming out of the network every year. I think last year we... Uh, it's always sort of going up. So I think last year we hit about 80. Um, and, you know, they range from, you know, the sort of high-profile high Red Cross predictive fire prevention techniques to working with smaller local nonprofits that need some help on, you know, putting together the data they've got to help make better decisions. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's a, it's, it's a fairly robust group, but we're trying to go further. We're trying to get even more people involved um, and uh, even to potentially go deeper and see how we can build on some of these projects so that they're not just one-offs. We're actually continually making progress towards a, a single tool or insight that might be helpful. We're speaking with Jake Porway, who is the founder of DataKind. We're talking about how, you know, we can use big data and analytics to think more creatively around um, solutions to complex social problems. And if you're, you know, if you're a nonprofit out there and you have sort of a problem that you would like to ask Jake about and how data can and, and analytics can be used for your organization, give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And Cheryl, I have a question for you. Me? Okay. In this world of
world of big data and and the types of things we're talking about with Jake, you're a PhD in ethics. Yes. Does do any alarm bells go off for you or like from an ethicist perspective? That's a really tough word the sometimes. Kind, the ethicist. kind of big brother aspect. Yeah, as like well. how do you feel about that? Or not just big brother, but also sort of just hey, someone is able to commercialize my activity. You know, they're not paying for that, but you know, I'm willingly checking the box that I agree to their terms of of use. I mean, what, how do you how do you respond to that? You know, I think it, it's interesting. I actually knew somebody once, um, and I I don't know what she did with her company, but she was trying to find ways to get the monetization back to the the person who did the signing. That if their data was used for something, they were then able to sort of profit from that usage in some ways. Um, you know, I think it's a it's a difficult issue, and I think that people. I'm more concerned, I think, about um, where you might go with the information that you're giving. You know, like Google knows where I am at any particular moment that I have my phone, right? Yeah. You know, and so what do, how do we make sure that that is not used in, in dangerous ways? Sure. I'm more con- concerned with maybe your car texting you or tweeting you. It does uh, that. Which it already does. Uh, but <laughs> it says Jake, I need you know, it to be repaired. To get a little philosophical here, you know, Jake, where where are you seeing, I mean, you work with data, like how how do you think we can protect um, ourselves or, you know, where, where do you think the balance lies for us? I, I actually love that you brought this topic up because it's a very uh, popular topic. We talk about a lot of data kind. Um, and I would say just for the listeners out there, this is, uh, there are tons of groups addressing this, whether it's um, out of Stanford at Digital Impact, digitalimpact.io, or Data and Society out of New York. We, we love these groups who are talking about ethics of data and algorithms. Um, everyone should go look that up. And, and I really couldn't strongly recommend enough the book, uh, Weapons of Mass Destruction. Yeah, we, I, think um, we, Kathy O'Neill. I think we've actually had her, uh, the author on the show. Oh, wonderful. Okay, great. Excellent. So good. There's already good uh, fertile ground here, but I will I'll throw my own two cents in to say, look, there's huge ethical challenges here. Not only are you building data tools uh, for people that may not necessarily know how to apply them. You know, we're sort of very admittedly opening ourselves up in the sense that we also have, you know, volunteers from Silicon Valley coming to work with organizations who are going to work on behalf of a constituency and use advanced technology. So there are lots of places where the responsibility can be passed around, and that's a really important conversation to have around who, you know, if something goes wrong, you know, we're talking about people's lives now. We're not just talking about um, if Netflix goes wrong, you get the wrong movie recommendation, boo-hoo. Um, if your fire alarm uh, algorithm goes wrong, you, you miss a chance to save a life or you potentially harm a life. So this is a really – this is not just a, a nice casual side conversation. This is really key to the, the mainstream of our work. And one of the things that we come back to is constantly working really hard in the design phase to bring all the participants to the table, whether that's the nonprofit, the data scientists, even constituents to just try our best to really do a lot of you know, human-centered design up front to say, hey, when we build this thing, what's the worst that could happen? Who's going to use it? How? How do you know how it works? So, so I'll say that's the data kind stance, and that's the best we have so far is to just continually be critical of ourselves um, and to bring as many perspectives to the table up front. But I would also just say for the casual listener, I think the biggest thing we can do is get out of thinking of data as a, uh, as a unit, as a, as a, a resource. You know, the, the thing is we're talking about data and ownership. Who owns your data? Who can use your data? Um, but that's not actually as compelling to me as the question of how that data is going to be used. And we don't really – you can never sort of get ahead of that because right. new algorithms come out every day. New data sources can be combined every day. And the problem is we have this kind of information asymmetry. You know, if I were to buy an apple for a dollar, I know what I get for an apple. 
I pretty much know what else a dollar could be traded for. I have pretty complete information about the transaction I'm making. But when Facebook says, hey, would you like to share your location data to download Farmville? Well, I know what Farmville is, but I don't really have a concept of what my location data could be used for. Um, if, if Facebook instead said, hey, with just this information alone, we could estimate your income level, or we can determine if you're cheating on your spouse because we can see where you go at night, you might think a little differently. And it's not to say they would do that, but the, the but fact they could. that there's... They could, and the fact that there's not some kind of um, cognizance of that means that I think right now the conversation just gets really binary. We either say, oh, well, I throw up my hands, there's nothing I can do about it because it's all kind of scary and I'm going to click yes, or, oh, God, no one should ever have my data, I should, be, you know, I should have full control, no. And neither answer is really right, I think. It's just that's we're sort of forced into a, a place of um, kind of scarcity mindset because we don't really know what can be done with the data. We just know it's ours, and it's scary when it's not ours anymore. Yeah, and that's actually uh, an interesting angle on that, because I mean, it also goes to the point that there may be algorithms and decisions that are using data that seem to be irrelevant or come from a different angle. I think about insurance companies, for instance, that can base insurance costs not just on whether you've had an accident or not, but whether what your income is and what your your credit score is, because there's been some indication that that's correlated with accidents and all that, you know. So there may be data that's being used in ways that you just don't understand. And Jake, I want to just I want to come back to more a cheerier note and coming back to the data kind. <laughs> oh, you're type so perky. Work. Um, well, hey, I, I went there. <laughs> I went with the ethics conversation, and but it's an important conversation, so I don't want to downplay that. But I do want to, you know, we don't have a ton of time left, so I do want to come back to. Um, I think you guys teamed up with the United Nations Refugee Agency um, or maybe another partner that you've you've worked oh, with. Sure. You know, let's talk about another example so our listeners can get a really concrete idea like the Red Cross example. You got it. So there's a project that we're just finishing up now. So the results are still early, but I think the, the product itself is pretty illustrative. And it's a, a project with the Gates Foundation's agriculture, agriculture team. No, so I knew that. The challenge that they're facing right now is um, a lot of, you know, they really want to see sustainable agriculture because the more people can sort of um, you know, rely on their food supplies, the more stability there is. And in Ethiopia, um, you know, farming is a, a huge for, uh, source of sustenance. And so you have all these local small shareholder farmers, they call them, you know, people who own small farms or grow food for themselves. And there are these diseases that will just come through and wipe out the crops. Mm. And it's really tragic because you just, you know, kind of lose all of your income. And so the Gates Foundation said, if we could find more ways to prevent these diseases from coming through, We'd have more crops. People could live better, more fulfilled lives. And so they're working on a number of different really exciting strains, including uh, epi- uh, excuse me, botanists coming up with new strains of you know, resistant crops, et cetera. But one thing they wanted to know is, could we identify where this certain type of disease called wheat rust, where this wheat rust is? Because if we can see where it is, then we can go and treat it. And if we see where it is, we can also tell if it's spreading. It's going to be very hard to figure out where it is, because what are you going to do? Just go ask every farmer. You, that's you know, incredibly laborious process, you, you know, how can you actually figure this out? Going back to our earlier conversation, a couple of folks said, you know, satellite imagery might actually be able to help us here. So uh, looking at just, you know, think of it like Google Maps imagery, a bunch of teams first had read an algorithm that would identify where there was a wheat crop, because so many of these farms are just small local farms. You don't have like a big footprint, like an industrial farm, they're not registered with some local database, but you have to go out and find them. So first step, scan Ethiopia for wheat farms. So that's already pretty exciting, just doing that alone. Another group even found that by using kind of infrared or other kinds of ranges of um, 
uh, uh, imagery, you can actually pretty accurately detect when the disease is present in that wheat. So as I said, they're still finishing implementing this, but what you can see now is a kind of early warning detection system. So if, when this thing is done, imagine people you know, getting an alert saying, hey, wheat rust has been detected here. We think based on historical data, it's gonna spread over to this village. Go act, have the farmers plant different crops, deploy pesticides, et cetera, so that we can actually save the crops. Um, and the great thing is once this thing's up and running, it's pretty low cost and cheap. It just uses available data, mm -hmm. alerts people that are already listening for those things, and then lo and behold, you can hopefully uh, save a lot of crops. So that's another one I think is really great and, and goes back to our, our case where the organization itself doesn't even have to have a lot of data. There's just digital data out there you could be using to make these things happen. Yeah, actually, a question for you. Um, we've had the folks on from Data.World before on our show. Oh, and we, great. Yeah, and, and I think uh, I used to live in Austin, you know, fun tech entrepreneurial town. Oh, yeah. Um, I know some of those guys down there. How do you, you know, what's going, do you guys collaborate or how, do you use, like, the big data sets? Because, you know, they're just trying to compile the, all, all the, the data. data so that you guys can go run the analytics. Yeah, so we um, we know of Data.World. We've run into each other a couple of times. Love what they're doing. We haven't had a chance to collaborate yet, mostly just because we at Data kind of been just kind of busy with stuff. But sure. um, I, lo I love what they're doing. I think this is exactly the kind of thing the world needs, which is a big directory of this information so that we can all start uh, building upon it. So we're very excited to work with Data.World's uh, work and the data set, and can't wait to see what stuff we can come up with. So, Jake, what is next? I mean, is it just keeping on, keeping on? Doing a project for us? I mean, <laughs> yeah, what, what, what's, what's sort of the, the next thing for data kind? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked. You know, as mentioned, we've done over 200 projects. And so we're going to continue to provide those services to the social sector where they're needed. But one thing that's really important to me is that we don't just make these projects one-offs. Right. You know, my, my vision wasn't let's just do a lot of projects or feel good about a lot of people working together. The end goal is to reduce human suffering, uh, you know, to give people who are dying of, of not having clean water, clean water, you know, to, to make the world, <laughs> I was going to say to make the world a better place. So I can't say that with a straight face after all the Silicon Valley spoofs on that phrase, <laughs> right. but really to, to you know, improve, improve human well-being. And so one of the things that we're doing is we're really now, we've seen some of the results from the groups we work with um, start to get shared to certain other groups. So totally organically a map that we built for a group doing child well-being in D.C., uh, the, this visualization tool started popping up in a, a nonprofit in Kentucky in the U.K. And so we're starting to say, okay, so how do we go deeper now? How do we not just end a project and say, now that organization is better? How do we bring together maybe groups of people within the same issue area, like around clean water, or tools that seem to be working for one group and help support them so they could actually potentially help a larger ecosystem? Um, in a way, think of each of our projects as, kind of this, the prototype phase, which, of course, is a hard thing to do until you have data scientists. And now we're thinking, okay, so what's the next phase? How do we go deep? So that's what's next. Great. That's really great. And I'm definitely going to contact you after the show to talk about an idea. I love it. And, and I should say, it's like everyone should feel inclined to. We're at datakind.org. And uh, if you also check meetup.com for datakind groups, uh, we are also a ton of local data science and volunteer communities, maybe even in your area, holding events. I think that's often the best way to get acquainted, even if you don't have like a project idea yet. Uh, there's just a world of data scientists and nonprofits Love it. all excitedly working together that y'all should be a part of. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. We've been speaking with Jake Porway, who is the founder of DataKind. Check them out and see if there's a meetup of data scientists near you. Uh, we are going to take a short break, but when we get back, we'll be speaking with Natasha Friedis, who is the co-founder of NeedsList. This is Dollars and Change on SiriusXM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. 
For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.